All right, what's up, City Light? Good to see you guys. My name is Doug, and I get to be one of the pastors for our church. And man, I love what God is doing here in Southwest Iowa. You guys have had four baptisms in your first five weeks of being a public church, all right? That's awesome. God is good. I also love what God is doing down in Kansas City. Uh, Whenever uh, we sent you guys out to plant a church here, we also sent a team down to Kansas City. And so they are going. Uh, They are having their core team Sunday morning gatherings right now. They got city groups going. They got city like kids going. It's awesome to see what God is doing down there. I really believe that God approves of that church plant in Kansas City. How do I know that? Because the Chiefs are good this year. (laughs) They are killing it, right? It's like God's smile of approval on City Light Kansas City. Uh, Hashtag bad theology. Actually, that's not how things work, okay? But the Chiefs are good this year, and it's football season, and I promise this story's going somewhere, okay? Uh, I was born and raised in Texas, and so it was just ingrained in me to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. My hometown was actually, I know, I love you all too, okay? My hometown was actually just a couple hours away from Dallas, and in high school, there was this major announcement that the Dallas Cowboys were moving their training camp to my hometown. Man, it was all over the billboards, the television, the newspapers, everywhere. It was like, the Cowboys are coming to town, the Cowboys are coming to town. And when this news first arrived to my hometown, people responded. They um, uh, responded to it in different ways. Some people just received it with joy. They're like, oh, this is great. They like went out and got a roster so that they could try to memorize names and numbers and spot the players on the field. They planned their vacation days so that they could go to the training camp. They were just excited about it. Other people, they fought against it. They're like, oh, we don't want all these tourists in town. There's going to be too many people. They're going to destroy the local uh, fields at the university. They wrote letters to the editor, you know, stuff like that. They fought against it. Then there were still others who thought, oh, we could use this for our own gain. Man, like we could make some money off of this or we could have some fun with this. And that's what me and my friends chose to do. So what we did uh, is uh, we had a a good friend. He had a new car. It was like a new Honda. And it had like cool gold trim and dark tinted windows. And we were going to make everybody think that he was a Dallas Cowboy football player. Okay. Uh, Now, mind you, he was shorter than Pastor Eric, um, but he had a cool car. Okay. So what we did is there's this like security gate entrance to the player's parking lot. And so me and some of my friends, we went there. There was always a crowd trying to catch sight of a player or get an autograph. So we went there and we started spreading word saying, hey, did you hear the Cowboys signed a new punter? Yeah, they got a new punter. He's really awesome. And this was before smartphones. This was before the ESPN app. So we had like 30, 60 minutes to just like get everybody excited about this new punter. We even said, yeah, we hear he drives a Honda with gold trim and dark tinted windows. And then right on cue, my buddy pulls in to the security gate right there. And we all say, is that the new punter? The whole crowd's so excited. They're like, it's the new punter. So they go over, he rolls down his window. He said he was signing hats and footballs and jerseys and faces, like right next to Jerry Jones and Troy Aikman's autograph, right? It was quite an experience. We used it for a lot of fun. Then the security guards were kind of like, 
what's that car doing there and why isn't it going inside? You know, that sort of thing. So they start walking over. We were like, break through the crowd. Tell everybody, get out of here. So he puts it in reverse and leaves and we all walk away quietly and quickly, hoping that we don't get caught, okay? And uh, and when the Cowboys came to town, we wanted to use it for our own gain. Um, And eventually the show was over and we had to leave. Thankfully, we didn't get tackled. We didn't get arrested. And we didn't have to pay for anybody's special edition football. We got out of there. So, But the idea is, man, when the Cowboys came to town, people responded differently. Some received that news, some fought against it, and some used it for their own gain. Now, here's where that story actually matters. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. And we're going to look at what happens when Jesus comes to town. What happens when Jesus shows up? How do people respond? What do they do? And why does that matter to us in this room? Well, it matters to us because make no mistake, City Light, we want to see Jesus come to our town. We want to see Jesus come to Southwest Iowa. We're not just here to fill a building or gather donations or build an organization. No, we want to see Jesus show up in Southwest Iowa. So when that happens, how might people respond? We get three responses in Acts 19. The first one begins in verse 1 and goes like this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. Now you just got to know this Paul guy, he is all about Jesus. Jesus came to town in his own heart and rearranged him from the inside out. And ever since then, Paul literally would just go from town to town to town, telling everybody about Jesus and planting churches. So now Paul is bringing Jesus to Ephesus. The verse goes on and it says, there he found some disciples. And what we find out about these disciples is they're not actually disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of a guy named John the Baptist. Somewhere along the way, another guy had come through Ephesus and told all these people about John the Baptist, whose message was, repent, get your life right, get your life straight so that when God shows up, you're ready. And so that's exactly what these people were doing. They were living good lives, trying to do good deeds, but they hadn't even heard of Jesus. They hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul proceeds and he says, well, let me tell you who Jesus is. And for these people, when Jesus came to town, how did they respond? They received Jesus. Some people just received Jesus. And maybe you're like me. When I hear that phrase, like, received Jesus, I immediately have this picture in my head of me being like six years old, and I'm in a Sunday school classroom, and there's this really sweet lady kind of at the front of the room sitting in one of those mini chairs, you know, and she's talking to all of us and trying to tell us cute church kids that we're little sinners and we need to receive Jesus, right? Like we would receive a Christmas gift. We open up the package and there's a little figurine of Jesus and he's so cute and we receive him into our heart and we look at him when we get lonely at night, you know? Like that's what I think of when I think of receive Jesus. But when the Bible talks about receiving Jesus, it paints a different picture. When the Bible talks about receiving Jesus, it's more like a woman when she gets married, receives a new name. She takes on her husband's name. Like for my bride, my wife, on December 16, 2004, she was Whitney Thompson. But on December 17, 2004, 
she became Whitney Stevens. She received my name. She took on my name. She was still Whitney in some ways, but she, it's also like she had a whole new identity. That's what the Bible means when it says, receive Jesus. Here's how it played out in Acts 19 for these disciples. Verses 4 and 5, Paul's talking to them, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Now, baptism is all about receiving this new identity, taking on a new name. And so Paul's going, hey, that's great. You guys took on this identity of changing your lives, trying to be good people who do good things and do good works. That's what John the Baptist was teaching you. And you receive that. But then Paul continues, and he says that John the Baptist, he was telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. All the John the Baptist stuff, it was just paving the road for, setting the way for Jesus to come to town. And John the Baptist just wanted everybody ready so that when Jesus came to town, they could receive him. So what do these disciples do? Verse 5, on hearing this and connecting the dots to Jesus, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They received Jesus. They took on His name, took on His identity. And I think a lot of us in the room and a lot of our friends here in Southwest Iowa, man, we can really connect with this. There's tens of thousands of people in Southwest Iowa who are trying to live a good life and do good deeds, be kind to their neighbor, work a job, stay out of trouble. And some of us will even take it so far as to go to church on Sunday and hear a sermon and sing some songs, and that might even be you this morning. You know deep down inside that you should be a good person, and you know that God exists, and Grandma always said that God is in church, and so here you are. You're kind of like the disciples in Ephesus. It reminds me of my friend Nadie, who's a part of our church, and Nadie grew up as a Mormon. She spent many years of her life as a Mormon, And she believed that she could be good and that she should be good to do what the church said and stay out of trouble. Then in her sophomore year at Brigham Young University, a friend of hers started talking to her about Jesus. And this friend, he said that Jesus is God, Jesus is loving, and that Jesus alone lived that good life, that perfect life that Nadie really wanted to live, but no matter how hard she tried, she told me, I couldn't quite be good enough. I couldn't get rid of the bad stuff in me, the sin that just lived inside of her. And so she's wrestling with Jesus. Like, is Jesus perfect for me? Like in my place, is he my good? Or do I have to do this on my own? And all the while, her friend just keeps pointing her back to Jesus, pointing her back to Jesus Until one night, finally in her apartment, Nadie prayed and she received Jesus. She took on Jesus' name. She took on his identity and let Jesus be good for her in her place. So listen, this morning, if you're one of those people who you're just trying to be good and do good deeds, hoping that that is good enough, then I invite you to receive Jesus to trust that He is good for you 
in your place. Good on you for trying, right? But we, you and I both know that there's still bad in us. There's still sin in us that we can't get rid of no matter how much we try. But when we receive Jesus, he is good for us in our place. Receive Jesus. So when Jesus comes to town, that's the first response that we see is some people just receive Jesus. But then there's a second response, and that begins in verse 11. Let's check this story out. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. Now pause right there. Can we just say, that's awesome, right? Like, that is amazing. Paul has a runny nose, wipes his nose with Kleenex, throws it down. Someone grabs the Kleenex, takes it to the hospital, and people start getting healed with his Kleenex. I mean, that's power right there, right? That's like legit work of God, you know? Now, could we just imagine, just dream a little bit, what if stuff like that was happening in Southwest Iowa? Like, could you imagine going to the hospital and praying for people, and they get healed, or your coworker comes into the office with a bad cough, but he leaves with a clear throat. Or your baby wakes up and has an ear infection, is in pain, but you pray over her and she takes a nap pain-free. Like when Jesus comes to town, that's the sort of stuff that happens. People get healed in Jesus' name. And in Ephesus, it wasn't just healing, right? Like, did you see the last part of this verse? It says, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, when I read that, I immediately thought of like horror movies, like all those creepy scenes, you know what I mean? But in Ephesus, it was almost like a business. There were these guys who, they had their regular day jobs, but their side hustle was trying to cast evil spirits out of people, okay? They would go and like try to make some money off of that. And so these guys, they hear about Paul's Kleenex and they're like, oh sweet, maybe we could make some money off of this. So when Jesus came to town, how did these guys respond? They used Jesus. They saw an opportunity for power. They saw an opportunity to get famous. They saw an opportunity to make money. They're like, yay, God's doing awesome stuff. Maybe we can cash in on this. Like, maybe we can get in on this a little bit. They used Jesus. And, you know, I think if we're honest, many of us, we do the same thing don't we? I know for me, it's a real temptation. Yay, the church is growing. People are being saved and healed and set free. I wonder if I could make a living off of this. I, I wonder if I could get a raise out of this or make a name for myself using Jesus. Or maybe like your girlfriend is into Jesus and God and stuff, and so you're like, you know, if, if I go to city group and give her what she wants, then maybe later that night she'll give me what I want, using Jesus. Or maybe your boss at work is a Christian, so you kind of talk Christian-y language and say, oh, I'll be praying for you. All the while, you're just really hoping to get that pay raise or promotion, using Jesus. We use Jesus. So often, instead of just receiving Jesus and taking on his identity, we'll use Jesus to build our own identity. Instead of releasing our lives into his hands, we try to hold Jesus in our hands like a tool. 
And instead of submitting to Jesus as Lord, we try to manipulate Jesus like he's a formula. We use Jesus. Now, in Acts 19, when these exorcists try to use Jesus, how did that go for them? Like, do you know what happened to them? It's kind of funny, kind of scary, and kind of both, okay? When these guys invoke the name of Jesus in their little, like, evil spirit casting out formula, like, the evil spirit actually talks trash to them, beats them, and lets them run away naked, okay? Now, let's just read it in the Bible. If anybody ever tells you that the Bible is a boring book, they're just wrong, okay? Because stuff like this is in there. Look at verse 15, okay? It says, now after they invoke the name of Jesus, verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, if a demon ever says that to you, just run right then. You're not in a good spot. Just get out of that, right? Like he's talking trash to him. It goes on, verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded, right? Not a good situation for these seven sons, sons of Sceva. It reminds me of that scene in The Avengers where the Hulk grabs Loki. Have you seen the scene? He grabs Loki and he's literally tossing him around the room like a rag doll. That's what's happening here. Now, dudes, gentlemen, guys in the room, listen, if you ever start a fight with your pants on and you end up running from that fight with your pants off, you lost the fight, okay? Just so you know, these guys were trying to use Jesus and it didn't go well for them. Well, not surprisingly, this story spreads all over the town and the region and people get scared. Like some of these uh, side hustle exorcist guys, they just quit that job altogether. Christians hear this story and they realize, oh man, some of this witchcraft stuff, that's a sin. They confess it as sin. They even bring all their old witchcrafty books, pile them up and burn them in a heap. Some estimates would say that those books were worth one to five million dollars. They could have like cashed those in, sold them on Facebook Marketplace or OfferUp or eBay, something like that. Why didn't they cash them in? Well, they had learned their lesson from the seven sons of Sceva. You don't use Jesus. No, you receive Jesus. When you use Jesus, you end up being exposed. When you use Jesus, you lose your pants, right? So this morning, man, if you're using Jesus, can I just invite you to receive him instead? Instead of trying to use Jesus to build your own identity, receive his identity for you. And in that identity, I can serve our church instead of earn a paycheck. And in that identity, you can serve that girl instead of use her for your own pleasure. In that identity, you can work your job instead of manipulate your boss. Instead of using Jesus, receive Jesus. So when Jesus comes to town, there's different ways that people respond, right? And in verse 23, we're going to get the third response, the third snapshot of what happens when Jesus shows up. Some people receive him, some people use him, and others fight against him. Some people fought Jesus. Now, you got to know, in the town of Ephesus, they worshiped these idols, like these little silver, like almost figurines or statues. They worshiped these idols, and their favorite by far was a Greek goddess named Artemis. 
Artemis was precious to them. She was everything to them. Artemis was like the daughter of Zeus and the sister to Apollo. And she was kind of this protector, guardian, hunter who looked out for animals and children and grown-ups and that sort of stuff. And she was the center of everything in Ephesus. Literally, Ephesus was a major trade center and they had built their city around this shrine to Artemis. They had built their economy on Artemis. And so there were some silversmiths who actually made these little idols uh, of Artemis and they began to get smart. They realized, oh, if Jesus keeps coming to town, then we're not going to have a job much longer, right? Because then people stop the Artemis worshiping thing and they start the Jesus worshiping thing. And when they start the Jesus worshiping thing, they stop buying idols. And so these silversmiths, they fight against Jesus. They start spreading rumors and telling her, man, Jesus is going to ruin our town. He's going to destroy our economy. He's going to take down this precious goddess of ours named Artemis. And they like spread it all over. It ends up with this huge mob in the local amphitheater. And I've actually been to Ephesus and seen the remains of this theater. It would seat 25,000 plus, larger than any structure in southwest Iowa. And this theater was packed with people who were mad, shouting, confused. I mean, some of them had no idea what they were mad about. The others of them, they just wanted to run Jesus out of town, shut him down. They didn't want him around. Now, the whole scene like culminates when finally a town clerk, just a local official, says, guys, stop throwing a fit. Like, we got courts. Deal with it in the courts. We don't want to get in trouble. Everybody just go home. Well, thankfully, they did go home, okay? Now, here's what I want us to catch from this story. Why did they fight against Jesus? Right, like when Jesus came to town, people were being healed. (laughs) People were being set free. They were being saved. What's so bad about that? Why did they fight against Jesus? It wasn't because Jesus was mean to them. It wasn't because they thought there were contradictions in the Bible. It wasn't because church people were treating them badly. Why did they fight against Jesus? Because they loved Artemis. Because they loved Artemis. Look at Acts 19, verse 27. One of these silversmiths, he says, Guys, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I mean, can you hear the passion for Artemis, the emotions that they have attached to Artemis? And now watch how the crowd responds in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Skip down to verse 34. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is bigger than a football game. It's bigger than training camp. It's bigger than the Huskers or the Hawkeyes. This is devotion. This is passion. They adored Artemis. They needed Artemis. So why did they fight against Jesus? Because they loved Artemis. Now, lean in and catch this, okay? Why do we fight against Jesus? 
right? Let's, maybe you've received Jesus and he's doing work in your heart and he's changing you. And you're like, yeah, go, Jesus, rearrange me. I need that. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, we need to deal with or we need to talk about and you can fill in the blank and you say, nope, <laughs> not cool, Jesus. Don't go there. Why do we do that? Why do we fight against Jesus? Because we love something else more. And chances are for us, it's not a Greek goddess. It's not a little silver idol we could hold in our hands. It's probably something more like a paycheck or a special relationship that we don't want to let go of. Or it could be a certain pleasure, or it could be our reputation, or our children being those perfect angels, or growing up to be those rich professional athletes that we all wish they could be. For me, it's my comfort. Right? Now, when Jesus first comes to town, we'll be excited, man. We will high-five him when he's healing us. We will praise him when he's helping us. But then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, "Uh, we need to talk about this, and we fight against him. Why? Because we love that something else more. Here's how it played out in my life recently. Last Saturday, our family was doing a day of rest, right? We try to do this once a week, and we have five children, so I mean, it doesn't like really work, but we still give it our best shot, right? So last Saturday was a day of rest, and we wake up, and so I go downstairs with the kids. I'm like, hey, babe, I'll try to help them get breakfast ready, that sort of thing, thinking like, yeah, I'm the guy, you know? So we go downstairs trying to get pancakes ready, and our two-year-old, he's like the cutest kid ever in the entire history of the world. Our two-year-old starts doing the poopy dance. Now, if this is too much information, I apologize, but you need to know this for the sake of the story. He's doing the poopy dance. So anyways, I go get him and I put him on the toilet. I sit in front of a stool in front of the toilet for 20 minutes, just waiting, 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 nothing. Take him off the toilet. He poops his diaper. I'm like, oh man, right? So clean up the diaper, all that sort of stuff. Try to go back to pancakes. He starts doing the poopy dance again. I'm like, oh boy. Now I'm like, like my heart's not in a good place, right? So I take him back to the toilet. I sit there for 20 minutes with him. Nothing. Take him off the toilet poops his diaper. Okay, so again, I'm not in a good spot, right? I'm trying to go back to the pancakes after I get all that sort of stuff cleaned up. Right about this time, Whitney comes downstairs, okay? And I'm thinking, oh, she's just been up there laying around. Good for her, that sort of thing. So I'm like, hey, babe, I'm done. I'm going upstairs. Hope you can figure this out. She's like, well, I haven't had a break either. I didn't realize while I was dealing with the two-year-old, our three daughters had gone upstairs, needed attention, all those sorts of things. She'd been working and helping out too. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, but you got to deal with this because I'm out of here. I need some alone time. It wasn't my best moment as a husband, okay? I go upstairs and on the way up, I'm going, what am I going to do? This is going to be nice to have alone time. And so I start thinking, oh, I'll read through my sermon because I want to preach a really good sermon. And the Holy Spirit says to me, hey, Doug, can we talk about what just happened? And I wanted to say no, okay? But because I knew I was going to preach this, I said, sure, right? And so I, I pull out my prayer journal. I actually prayer journal on my phone. And I was just, I was just trying to confess it to him. I was like, God, I, I don't have a good attitude right now. I'm really upset. I'm not in a good spot. And when I did my prayer journal, I said, God, show me my sin." what is it that I'm loving more than you? What is that? And right away I knew it was comfort. It was so clear and obvious to me. It was my comfort. This was my day of rest. They should be perfect angels and never mess up at all, right? This is our day of rest. Everything should be easy and I should just sit on the couch and watch soccer games. No, 
I wanted my comfort. I was loving comfort more than Jesus. So I started confessing that to him. And here's how God responded to me. Here's what I think I heard from him. He said to me, Doug, you love comfort more, but I will love you greater. I will love you greater than comfort ever can. I'll love you greater than the church, greater than a crowd, greater than Facebook posts. I'll love you even more than your wife and your children. Even though you may love all that stuff more, I'll love you greater. When we're honest with God and we bring to Him those lesser loves, those things that in the moment we're loving more than Him, how does He respond? He reminds us that He can love us better. He can love us more. He can love us greater. So can I ask you this morning, what is your Artemis? What is that thing or that person in your life that you'd have to say, man, sometimes I love it more than Jesus. And it makes me push Jesus back. What is your Artemis? And oh, City Light, may we lay down our boxing gloves. May we lay down our lesser loves and let Jesus love us greater, especially in that area. And for some of you, I just got to be honest, straightforward, there's some of us who we have yet to ever receive Jesus because of this. Like, you know Jesus is loving, and you know Jesus is good. You even know that Jesus died to forgive you of your sins and bring you back to God. At the end of the day, your problem isn't really with Jesus. The problem is there's something that you love more than Jesus. Maybe it's yourself or your independence, your pleasure, your relationship. Maybe it's your pain or your religion. And for you, this invitation is the most difficult because even though you know that lesser love can't satisfy you, it's also all that you know. And sometimes nothing, something is better than nothing. But this morning, can you just entertain these questions for me? Just enter into it just for a little bit. What if there's a greater lover? What if Jesus could actually satisfy your soul? What if the one that you are fighting against is actually fighting for you, and the reason he won't give up that fight is precisely because he loves you more? City Light, this morning, would you lay down your lesser love and receive Jesus' greater love? When Jesus comes to town, Everybody responds. Some people receive him, some people use him, and others fight against him. But everybody responds. The question this morning is, which one are you?